Hello and welcome to The Beacon, the podcast brought to you by the Oxford International Relations Society. I'm your host, Liddy Sheehan, and our topic for this week is Trump's foreign policy. Will the US president succeed in putting America first? And what does this mean for the rest of the world? To find out more on the matter, I spoke to Dr. Jacob Parakilis, assistant head of the US and America's program at Chatham House, and Dr. Charles Krauthammer, a political commentator, for the Washington Post and Fox News. I'm joined now by Dr. Jacob Parakilis, the Assistant Head of the US and America's Programme at Chatham House. Dr. Parakilis has also worked at the World Security Institute, the Arms Control Association, and the US Department of Homeland Security. Thank you so much, Dr. Parakilis, for joining us today. Thank you very much. So I wanted to start by talking to you about a recent report published by you at Chatham House in January of this year, um, talked about Donald Trump's Um, election and described it as a turning point for the US's international role. Can you talk to me a bit about in what ways Donald Trump's election represents a turning point? Sure. This report started as a series of shorter pieces that we wrote during the election that whose purpose was to essentially compare and contrast the different policies in a variety of regional and thematic issues that the different candidates for president uh, would have taken. I wrote the first, initially wrote that, it looked at Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz, and Hillary Clinton. Um, Subsequently, the chapters focus more on Clinton and Trump as the two uh, remaining general election candidates, not including the third party candidates. Uh, and then after the election, we revisited those chapters. We edited them to focus on uh, Trump. We updated them with any new information that had come since they were originally written. And we added a few more chapters specific to uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, for example, Latin America, we wrote because I think Trump will probably take a much different approach to Barack Obama on hemispheric policy, whereas Clinton probably would have been much more continuity than change in that regard. Um, We generally tried to avoid uh, specific predictions. Trump is nothing if not unpredictable. Uh, So we tried to lay out a range of possible outcomes, uh, accommodating the the different views that Trump has had. So far, I think we haven't seen anything that we've written be completely proved incorrect. Um, Again, you know, we we had to accommodate a pretty broad range of outcomes, given the fact that Trump prizes unpredictability and the fact that he often left a lot of specifics out of his policy proposals. Uh, But I'm relatively pleased with the extent to which we uh, we sort of highlighted some of the major issues, his emphasis on increasing military spending, his desire to uh, restart American relations with Russia, uh, his generally aggressive approach to China and international trade negotiations, all of that's in the report. Okay, great. And um, so what did you outline as his key policy objectives? As much as he's unpredictable, um, is there a broad outline? Um, I think you mentioned, so... Russia, China? Yeah, I mean, there have been various attempts to fit Trump into the sort of broad schools of foreign policy thought. Um, And some people have described him as an isolationist. Some people have described him as uh, more of a sort of realist. I think actually in a lot of ways what he's saying when he talks about America first, when he talks about uh, refocusing on a very narrowly defined set of American strategic objectives, what he is is a nationalist fundamentally. He believes that the U.S. 
exists in a zero-sum world so that in every agreement the U.S. makes, there's a winner and a loser, and he wants the U.S. to win that agreement. Um, that's not a view that has had a lot of takers in recent American foreign policy history. Um, obviously, American politicians tend to put U.S. national interest first, but they have tended to define U.S. national interest as encompassing a lot of very broad goals. So American politicians have generally been supportive of alliances like NATO or the Defense Pact with Japan or South Korea as beneficial to the U.S. because they create the impression and they reinforce the impression that the U.S. is a reliable partner, um, which gives it strength in international negotiations. It means that the U.S. has a stronger voice backed up by allies in international negotiations and international bodies. Uh, It means that the U.S. can sort of rely on friends and partners to carry out its uh, foreign policy objectives in concert with it. Um, so that's been a very a very broad sort of bipartisan agreement, and Trump seems less interested in that. He sees alliances, again, as primarily sort of transactional, as uh, effectively – he, he's gone back and forth a little bit on the question of whether U.S. alliances are actually worthwhile at all. He has at some time said the sort of generally accepted – things about, you know, valuing the, valuing the U.S.-Britain relationship, valuing the U.S.-Japan relationship, at one point saying that he had 100% commitment to NATO, but he's also, in ways that no other contemporary U.S. president or, indeed, national leader of any stature has said, uh, he, he said things like, NATO is obsolete, and that, you know, U.S. allies need to actually uh, pay their fair share, and not really defining what that means. So you're seeing a very different view of what it means to be the the U.S. Uh, in the world, and what it means to be aligned with the U.S. Yeah. Um, on that point, actually, so if if Trump perhaps is showing greater flexibility in who he he can ally himself with, and who he can ally um, the United States with, um, do you think that this will have an impact on what we can class as U.S. values, because um, if he's willing to work, for example, with Russia to achieve certain objectives, for example, defeating ISIS, um, I mean, America has always prized itself on and gained legitimacy in foreign affairs um, based on its values such as democracy and liberty. But if Trump's willing to work with people that maybe don't share these values, what, what impact do you think this will have? I mean, it has to be said that the U.S. has always, despite its professed commitment to those values, the U.S. has always worked with, let's say, imperfect partners. Uh, the U.S. has been a strong ally of Egypt, for example, which has a military government. It's supported in the past other countries that have had either military coups like uh, Turkey. It's you know, it has stuck with allies even as they have uh, gone down in measures of democracy and uh, transparency. So the U.S., it, it, it speaks the language of sort of universal commitment to values. In the real world, like any other country, the U.S. deals with countries and works with countries which do not live up to those professed values. Where the U.S. stands apart from other previous hegemonic powers in the international system is that it has made sort of some faltering steps towards making democracy uh, a a broadly held, if not universal, value. Um, So what Trump is doing is in a way 
approaching the world not like a post-World War II American politician, but like the leader of a generic hegemonic state, which cares primarily for the welfare of its own citizens and doesn't take the view of sort of a broader, more long-term definition of self-interest, which includes the promotion of democracy and openness as liberal values. Do you think that will mean a decreased influence um, of US values abroad? I think it's probably a little bit too early to say. Mm -hmm. Um, It certainly doesn't help the US case. It doesn't give US diplomats an easier job when they argue for decreasing restrictions on the press or open or unfair elections. Um, when the President of the United States has expressed position is essentially that, you know, these are domestic matters and the U.S. should take no view on them, let alone, I mean, you know, the U.S. has broadly said that it won't interfere in other countries. It hasn't always lived up to that. But uh, for the U.S. to actively say, you know, this isn't our business, how a country runs itself is this business, is exactly how other hegemonic states in history have have viewed matters. They, they make operational alliances, not sort of values-based alliances. Um, and over time, depending on whether Trump changes his tune, if he's successful, if he sort of remakes the State Department and the practice of American foreign policy in his own image, uh, then that could be incredibly influential. Or it could be that Trump either decides to leave the leave the foreign policy consensus alone and his successor reverts to a more traditional view of America's role in the world, uh, I think you might see that this might be seen as sort of an aberration, but it will, in the short to medium term, have significant impacts on U.S. credibility because if the U.S. vacillates back and forth very quickly between uh, – standing up for values and with an, uh, basing its alliance commitments on those and not doing so, then that really diminishes the credibility of, of the U.S. word. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, looking into the future, what would, you say, um, what would you say could be the potential biggest threats to Trump achieving his foreign policy objectives? Right now, the biggest threat to Trump achieving his foreign policy objective is the fact that he hasn't set up a government that can actually carry out a foreign policy. Um, Most of the key foreign policy roles beneath the cabinet level remain unfilled. There's not even a deputy at the State Department, for example, let alone the numerous positions at the sort of undersecretary or deputy assistant secretary levels who are fundamentally responsible for specific regional or thematic policy areas. Um, And without that structure in place, the bureaus of the U.S. government which deal with foreign policy are extremely limited in their capacity to uh, carry out new policy. They can sort of tread water, but it's more and more difficult for them to um, carry out new policies or change course uh, without that level of leadership in place. In the longer term, assuming that he does eventually fill those uh, roles, the biggest obstacle is is essentially inertia. Um, the U.S. government is a massive, massive enterprise. It contains numerous bureaucracies, sub-bureaucracies, interests, established ways of doing things, and it's incredibly difficult for people to remake it fundamentally. 
So what Trump will find over time is that, you know, he has a vision and he puts out that vision and that gets filtered through a different lens by Congress, by the Defense Department, by the State Department, by the National Security Council. And what comes out at the end, and that's even before you get to the question of whether that policy has the impact that he wants it to in the real world. Um, So, you know, from one end of the machine to the other, things look very different. Okay. yeah. And um, so if if the U.S. isn't playing its traditional role, or as you say, potentially is unable to play the role that has typically played for the last century or so internationally, um, do you see someone else as coming to step in, or do you think that he's actually this will lead to just a change in the game of um, international leaders and foreign policy? The problem is nobody else is really prepared to step into that void. Uh, the European Union is. Uh, comparable in economic size to the United States, but it doesn't have a military, it doesn't have a joined-up foreign policy. Um, You know, there is the European External Action Service, but it requires sign-off from 28, soon to be 27 member states in order to have a policy. So it tends to be very diffuse and limited to sort of very, very broad-spectrum type uh, objectives. The other claimant to the throne would be China. And China has a growing economy. It has a, a increasingly powerful military. But China lacks several of the important features that the U.S. has. First of all, it doesn't have the network of alliances around the world that the U.S. does. Um, countries tend to uh, work, again, operationally with China, but China has relatively few sort of deep alliances that are comparable to uh, the U.S. alliances with Japan, the UK, South Korea, France, Germany, and so on and so forth. Um, And the Chinese military is not, even though its capabilities are growing, it's not designed fundamentally for the kind of power projection that the US military is. China's military is designed to fight a war in the immediate environs of China, and it's increasingly capable of that task. But the Chinese military can't, for example, send a task force halfway around the world and conduct operations at a sustained pace. That's just not something that it has the capacity to do, and it'll be years and probably decades before it can do that at the same scale that the U.S. can. So there's no real, uh, there's no real sort of, you know, person waiting in the wings or state or institution or a group of states that's able to take the role of the U.S. So if the U.S. does actually follow through on Trump's promises and become more nationalist and inwards looking, I think what you'll see is probably a much more unstable system, not a smooth transition to a new hegemon. Okay. And um, just finally, um, what are the positives, do you think? What, what can we be um, looking forward to? Is there anything... Um, in terms of this new approach to foreign policy? Well, Trump has gotten rid of some of the convenient illusions about U.S. foreign policy. Um, as I said earlier, the U.S. has always worked sometimes very closely with countries that are undemocratic, countries that don't have the same level of hum- respect for human rights that the U.S. or European countries or other democracies might. Um, and that's always been a sort of awkward moment for the U.S. to acknowledge that despite its high-minded rhetoric about democracy and human rights, its allies, let alone the United States itself, doesn't always live up to that. Um, so there's a value in Trump essentially saying, well, we, you know, we we also you know do do things that are not morally legitimate mm-hmm. and we're going to work with countries because that's in our national interest i mean that's a very the value of 
doing so is much less than the value of continuing to speak for those interests, of course. But, you know, there is there is an extent to which a sort of implicit U.S. acknowledgement that it has national interests and it operates on that basis um, is valuable. I think there's also, you know, there are things like uh, a renegotiation of NAFTA, which Trump is approaching from a very sort of nationalist perspective, but might actually bring about valuable modernization of some of the sort of um, the institutions that have been, that have, you know, stagnated uh, without renegotiation for a while. Um, and, you know, I think this will also force countries which have been, uh, which have largely relied on U.S. security guarantees to take their own security and their own place in the international order uh, a little bit more and that might be good. I mean, on the whole, I think the, you know, again, it's early to say, and, and Trump could go in a lot of directions, and I think the disruptive impact far outweighs those, but I do, I can see some potentially positive impacts of this approach to global affairs. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was really insightful. And it'll be really interesting no to hear from you in the future, and we'll see. Sure. Thank you for joining us. No problem. I'm joined now by Dr. Charles Krauthammer. Charles Krauthammer is a columnist for the Washington Post and a commentator for Fox News. He's also an author of the New York Times number one best-selling book, Things That Matter, Three Decades of Passion, Pastimes and Politics. Thank you very much, Charles Krauthammer, for joining us. My pleasure. So I wanted to begin by talking to you about something I read recently in an article by you. And I believe that you likened Donald Trump's foreign policy tactic to stance adopted by President Nixon during the Cold War, and I'm talking about the madman theory, the idea behind the theory being that President Nixon would persuade his enemies to avoid provoking the United States by appearing as volatile and potentially irrational. I wondered if you could talk to me a bit about how Donald Trump is employing this tactic in the context of today's world order. What kind of reaction does he want his enemies to fear? Well, I'm not sure that in Trump's case it's a deliberate tactic. Mm -hmm. With Nixon, we know it was from the memoirs of some of his aides, where they actually, on at least two occasions, played up that sort of that aspect of Nixon, unpredictable, volatile, and who knows what he might do to um, cow uh, adversaries during a crisis. Now, Trump has only been in office for about a month, um, but I don't think that, uh, and I think this may play out over time, mm -hmm. he certainly is volatile and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. In fact, he boasted about having an unpredictable foreign policy to keep his enemies, or you, America's enemies, on its toes. But I think much of this is inadvertent. His own instincts and his worldview as set out in his inaugural address, which is rather isolationist, America first, mm -hmm. uh, fairly dismissive of allies and of um, foreign aid and assistance, uh, is one version of his foreign policy. On the other hand, his cabinet is very traditional, mm -hmm. secretaries of state and defense, national security, etc. And they, uh, they adhere to the more traditional post-World War II internationalist line. 
So you have these two fairly contradictory foreign policies emanating from the White House, and nobody is quite sure which one is going to prevail. Mm -hmm. But the effect it's had is that the, uh, for example, in the meetings held two weeks ago in Germany, where the Secretary of State, the Vice President, Secretary of Defense, all show up and reassure everybody that we're pro-NATO, mm -hmm. that's the good cop. And then you've got the Trump who says you got to pay up or, you know, we're going to get out of here, is your bad cop. And you do see some response. The Germans are not announcing an increase in the size of their military. So I expect the good cop, bad cop, meaning the more traditional envoys, the ones in the cabinet, uh, saying to their counterparts abroad, look, you got to help us out here, either to allies or even to enemies, because we really don't know what the boss back in the White House is liable to do. Mm -hmm. And how, how long can he pursue this kind of two-part policy? Because if he is, if he does end up ultimately, if the conventional side wins out, will, will people take him seriously when he pursues a radical rhetoric? I think they may not. Mm -hmm. And then I think it'll be fairly reassuring to allies that he's not the wild man he was on the campaign trail or the wild man he was in his inaugural address. That was a fairly radical foreign policy manifesto. Uh, I think it will diminish the effect. But on the other hand, the world will rest a little easier. Uh, you have to realize that Trump is not a systematic thinker. Mm -hmm. And he may just react from one crisis to another, acting more recklessly or, if you like, originally uh, more independently in some crises, more traditionally in others. So I'm not sure there's even going to be a pattern. It's very early. I simply wanted to lay out kind of the two themes, uh, traditional and more isolationist, unpredictable, mm -hmm. that have so far run through his foreign policy. Yeah. So going back to what you said about his foreign policy and the idea of America first, I think you've commented on this in the past, but how genuine do you think this um, notion of America first is? Because I believe you've said it could just be, in fact, a bargaining chip by Trump in order to potentially intimidate other world leaders. Um, and in fact, maybe he's just pursuing traditional foreign policy goals. Um, or is it a genuine belief in isolationism? I don't know that he has a genuine belief in anything. <laughs> uh, I think he really thinks he wakes up in the morning and comes up with ideas. Some of them are the ones he had the morning before, and some are not. He has a general impulse to serve the people who ended up electing him, mm -hmm. meaning basically the middle class, working class, uh, who have been hurt by, in his perception, globalism, both in trade and in the military and other aid abroad, and that it's time to concentrate on the U.S., time to look after American interests, and if that means trade wars, so be it. If that means pulling back from allies, so be it. That's what he, I think, believes to the extent he has any deep beliefs in foreign policy, that foreign policy 
should be the handmaiden of domestic policy and that the ultimate goal of domestic policy is to restore a middle class and working class who have been in decline uh, economic and social and uh, almost, you might say, status decline mm -hmm. over the last generation. And if that means sacrificing efforts, aid, intervention, engagement abroad, so be it. Mm -hmm. If there is a belief, that would be the closest to describing it. Mm -hmm. mm, interesting. And um, but is this does this kind of attitude have the potential to backfire now that he's not just trying to win support from a domestic audience? Um, it could backfire because trade wars aren't a good idea. Mm -hmm. They may look good in the short run. They will backfire. They will impoverish both parties. And I do think that um, cutting off aid to your allies, again, it might be good in the short run. But in the long run, if you're isolated, you have to spend infinitely more to defend your interests around the world than you would if you could rely on local allies. So in my view, they're both misguided policies. They may and therefore would backfire in the sense that if they hurt the United States economically and geopolitically, it will be felt by his constituency and he'll have less support. But we're not looking to 2020 for re-election. We're just looking now to see whether he maintains a reasonable enough popularity to be able to carry out his policies. And thus far, there have been no baleful consequences from his foreign policy. So it hasn't been an issue yet. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that he's bringing new meaning to the word foreign policy because is this kind of could this be the end of a u.s foreign policy that is aimed at shaping international affairs and a concern for international development is it now that foreign policy is really just domestic policy to some extent foreign policy in america always is mm -hmm. a branch of domestic but there's always been this independent notion since the end of the second world war that we whether we sought it or not we inherited the European and, to some extent, the British role of uh, leading the West. It now fell to us, as uh, John Kennedy said, the torch has been passed. We're kind of reluctant hegemon. I think you British were a little more enthusiastic about empire than we are. <laughs> we kind of accepted it as our lot, mm -hmm. but we didn't actually go seeking it. So it's always had a tenuous hold. Um, we. We don't exactly luxuriate in that role. And Trump reflects, I think, a, a fairly common view that um, we've been doing too much abroad, spending too much abroad, risking too much abroad. Um, and to what extent he carries it out in policy, I'm not sure, because as I said, his cabinet, his officers, are generally more internationalist and they may restrain those impulses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, just a kind of final question then, I wanted to ask, how do you see things progressing? Do you, do you hope ultimately, I think you kind of touched on it before, do you hope that the conventional policy-making side will win out? Yes, I am a uh, lifelong internationalist. I do believe that both for the sake of the world, but for the sake of the United States, our long-run interest always is to maintain this policy of leadership.
mm-hmm. uh, even at the cost of some short-term sacrifice. Um, I do think in the end, because it is the, uh, I don't know if I should say natural, but it's generally foreign policies uh, develop regardless of personalities, simply because of the interest, the needs, the geography, the history of the various countries. It's sort of dictated by their circumstances, and ours, I believe, dictate this sort of global engagement. So even though there may be a bit of a wobble on that during the Trump years, I do believe um, it's America's destiny to lead, to be engaged, uh, to maintain a free trade posture overall, and to remain engaged with allies. So I do think that's the right policy. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it prevails, might even prevail in the Trump era, as I said, if he is sort of hemmed in and hedged in by his more traditional uh, cabinet officers. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. Um, That was really interesting. I think that's all we've got time for now, but thank you. Okay. My pleasure and good luck. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's The Beacon. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors, the Brussels School of International Studies at the University of Kent and to the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Thank you also to podcastthemes.com for providing the intro and outro music. And thank you to you, the listeners. And until next time, goodbye.